Welcome to the Faith Life Fellowship Podcast with Dr. Scott Forrest. In today's message, Dr. Forrest presents part two of his series, Victory in the Midst of Seeming Defeat. All right, praise the Lord. I'm kind of excited about today's message because I get to weave a little bit of science into it. And you know I'm a space and time guy, so I'm going to enjoy that part of it. Praise the Lord. So we've been talking about victory in the midst of seeming defeat. So last week we talked about the connection between the all-powerful love of God and how that love motivates the Lord to bring us victory even in the midst of seeming defeat. And just to let you know where that phrase came from, a couple of Sundays ago, we were free worshiping, kind of like we were this morning, and I heard the Lord speak to me on the inside with what I call the audible voice on the inside. And he said, there shall be victory. And then there was a pause. And he said, even in the midst of seeming defeat. Amen. And a few days later, I felt the Holy Spirit urging me to spend some time on this concept in the month of March, partly because of what's going on in the nation, but also because of what's going on in the lives of our people here at Faith Life Fellowship. So let's begin today's session with our main text from last week found in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 37. I'll be reading in the Passion Translation. That is Romans chapter 8, verse 35 to 37. Amen. Who could ever separate us from the endless love of God's anointed one? Absolutely no one. For nothing in the universe has the power to diminish his love toward us. Troubles, pressures, and problems are unable to come between us and heaven's love. What about persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and death threats? No, for they are all impotent to hinder omnipotent love. You know, that last line is kind of heady and kind of hard to decipher. But what it means is that all these things, these troubles, these pressures, these problems, persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and death threats, they are all impotent or powerless to hinder God's all-powerful love. Verse 36 says, even though it is written, all day long we face death threats for your sake, God. We are considered to be nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. That's a quotation from Psalm 44, 22, by the way. Verse 37 says, yet even in the midst of all these things, troubles, pressures, problems, persecutions, deprivations, dangers, and death threats, Even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors, and His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. Does that leave anything out? Over everything. So this morning I want to spend most of the time talking about and answering this question. What does it mean To be more than a conqueror. What exactly does that phraseology really mean? Well, if you look at the actual Greek word that is translated as the phrase 
more than conquerors. It is this word. Now, in the Greek, it's pronounced like this. It's hupernikao. Because the Y in Greek is pronounced as a long O with an oo sound. But if you read it in English, the way we would read those letters spelled out right there before us, we would say this is hypernikao, right? And indeed, it is where we get our English word for hyper from this word, hupernikao. It means to gain a decisive victory, to more than conquer, to vanquish beyond. Is that not cool? Piper. It, it means over, above, more than the normal, excessive. Amen. I like that too. Over, above, more than normal, excessive. Amen. You are over, above, more than normal, excessive. You are more than a conqueror. Amen. Hallelujah. You can gain a decisive victory. You can more than conquer. And you can vanquish beyond. Actually, beyond anything that you could think of. Amen. So if you'll hang with me, I want to build a mental picture to help you visualize the concept of this word, hyper. Over, above, more than normal, or excessive. And it involves a realm that I'm familiar with, having flown military aircraft for 30 years of my life. In the aerospace world, an aircraft that can fly faster than the speed of sound is called supersonic. Because it literally can fly faster than the sound it is making. And when you approach the speed of sound in a supersonic aircraft, shock waves begin to accumulate around the structure of the aircraft. And those shock waves keep accumulating and accumulating and accumulating the closer you get to the speed of sound. Then when you reach and exceed the speed of sound, the aircraft literally breaks free of these accumulated shock waves. And a sonic boom, hallelujah, Somebody's already said that today. A sonic boom is released into the atmosphere that can shatter windows and can be heard for miles away from the aircraft that has just broken the speed of sound. Pretty cool concept, eh? Hallelujah. You literally break through the shock waves and you begin to fly faster than the sound you are making. That's a mind blower, isn't it? That's what it means to fly at supersonic speeds. Now, I have to tell you that I never had the pleasure of breaking the speed of sound in a military aircraft. I came close, but there are rules against it, so I had to pull the throttles back before I busted through and made a sonic boom. But the cannon shells that I fired out of my A-10 attack jet would break the speed of sound a few seconds after they left the barrel of the Gatlin gun that was built into the belly of my aircraft. And it had a distinctive double burp sound that you could hear on the ground. It went something like this. Burp, burp. <laughs> the first sound you hear is the actual Gatlin gun firing. The second sound you hear is all the rounds that have been fired breaking the speed of sound. 
burp, burp. Now, for somebody on the ground that's being attacked by an A-10, it is a very fearsome sound. <laughs> Hallelujah. Whew. You know, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. You know, all the times I fired that Gatlin gun. You know what it was like? People say, what was it like firing that gun? I said, I'll tell you exactly what it was like. Just imagine sitting on top of a 2,500-pound McCullough chainsaw and that thing going off and vibrating you. That's exactly what it felt like. It was a rush, and it was a release of power, and anything on the other end, the business end of those bullets was completely demolished. But as cool as all that is, supersonic being a mind-blower in and of itself there are hypersonic aircraft that will one day allow us to fly at the edge of space at five times the speed of sound. In a hypersonic aircraft, you literally fly five times faster than the sound you're making as you streak across the atmosphere at unthinkable speeds, thousands of miles an hour. But we're not done yet. That's not the best part. We're talking about hyper. Why hyper is such a special word. The number two definition of Collins American English Dictionary of hyper is existing in a space of four or more dimensions. Oh, that's wild. I got to read that again. Existing in a space of four or more dimensions. You know, some of you may be aware that we exist in a natural universe of four dimensions that we know of. There are three definable dimensions of length, width, height, and then the dimension of time, and all of them together are referred to as space-time. And one of the concepts that science fiction writers referred to a lot in books and movies, is the notion of hyperspace. Hyperspace. They believe it is a space that exists within our dimensional universe, but in another dimension that we can't see or haven't figured out how to enter yet. And there's a picture for you of an artist's depiction of what hyperspace might look like. And they speculate that if you could ever slip into hyperspace, the normal rules of space and time would not apply. In other words, this would allow you to exceed the speed of light and travel around the galaxies at unheard of velocities. This would allow us to reach across the universe in hours, days, weeks, or months instead of hundreds, thousands, or millions of years. Now, this is exactly how I believe the angels fly from heaven to earth and back in relatively speedy fashion. You see, I believe that heaven is at least 14 billion light years due north of planet earth. So if they had to travel there and back at sublight speed, it would take 14 billion or more years to get there one way. If they were limited by the laws of the physical four-dimensional universe, they could not travel faster than the speed of light, and it would take billions of years to travel such distances, even at the speed of light. 
Now, it still takes time for them to get here, mind you, just not as much time as it would if they tried to do it without entering the spirit realm. They may not call it hyperspace, but there is a dimension in the spirit realm where the natural laws of physics just don't apply. Amen? All of this says to me that the phrase more than conquerors is a bit of an understatement in most English translations. Wouldn't you agree with me? It doesn't even come close to capturing the expressive and nuanced nature of the Greek language. That's why I like to read from the Amplified Bible every once in a while because it pulls out some of the extra notions and explores some of the nuances that you you can't get in a word-for-word translation in the English. Amen. Amen. Think about this. God has made us to be hyper-conquerors. Hyper-conquerors. And with all this in mind, it's all because God loves us so much, He wants us to succeed so much, that He's determined to make us hyper Conquerors. Get used to that word because I'm going to use it a number of times before we're done today. And being a hyper-conqueror takes our notions of victory and conquering to a whole new level, a whole new dimension beyond our wildest imagination. So can we find any examples of this kind of hyper-conqueror in the Bible? Because if we can, we can validate this concept that I'm talking about. God has created us to be hyper-conquerors. Well, it just so happens that there was a group of men that they called David's mighty men of valor. And they get my vote for being the world's first hyper-conquerors. These men did exploits that seemed so fantastic that they're hard to believe. They were over, above, more than normal, excessive, and vanquishing beyond anything you or I could ever imagine. I want you to listen to just a few of their testimonies, and I think you'll agree with my assessment of these mighty men of valor. If you would, turn in your devices or your Bibles to 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. We're going to read verses 8 through 12 and bring you three examples of mighty men of valor, of hyper conquerors. 2 Samuel 23, 8 through 12. I'll be reading in the English Standard Version. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshib Bashabeth, the Tachmanite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Wow. (laughs) This guy was such a fierce warrior that he killed 800 men in a single battle. I can't even imagine enough hours in a battle to do such a thing. He must have been really fast. Now, he probably carried a sword, but it's clear from the context that his weapon of choice was the spear. Well, how do you know that, Brother Scott? Well, 
even though this translation doesn't specifically say that he used a spear, we know that he did. Because he was so good with the spear, they no longer called him by his rightful name. They called him Adino, the Esnite, which means the sharp spear. They didn't even call him by his name. They said, here comes the sharp spear. Can you just imagine a group of warriors, you know, with their spears in hand and pounding on the floor? And when he enters the room, they start chanting his name. Sharp spear, sharp spear, sharp spear, sharp spear. I mean, after all, we're talking about warriors here. Whew, I got chills thinking about it. He was over, above, more than normal, excessive and vanquishing beyond anything you could ever imagine. He was a hyper conqueror. No one can kill 800 men with a spear in a single battle without God's help. The odds alone would have caught up with you. Clearly, God was with him and brought him victory in the midst of seeming defeat. I still got chills from, from the chant. It was like I was transported in time back into those days. Amen. Verse 9. If that wasn't wonderful enough, it says, And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. So get the picture here. While the rest of the Israelite army retreated, David and Eleazar stood their ground and engaged the entire Philistine army. Do you hear what I'm saying? And the rest of the army showed up just to gather the spoils. I don't even have words to describe the magnitude of what I just read to you. Just two men, David and Eleazar, fought the entire Philistine army, and they won! They didn't go down in glory. They won. They weren't like the 300 Spartans who went down in glory. They were two guys that fought an army and won. They were over, above, more than normal, excessive and vanquishing beyond anything you could ever imagine. They were hyper conquerors. Clearly God was with them that day and brought them victory even in the midst of seeming defeat. Verse 11. And after him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the Herorite. Boy, some of these names. The Philistines had gathered together into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines. But he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. Again, these words kind of are understatements here. 
Wow, what a story. Listen, Shama stood in the middle of a field of lentils, which is a source of food, and defended it from the entire troop of Philistines. I don't know why. Maybe he was hungry. Maybe he wanted the lentils for himself. Uh, maybe he wanted to preserve that field as a source of food for the nearby villagers. So when everyone around him fled from the Philistines, Shama stood his ground in the middle of the lentil field. And he single-handedly killed the entire troop. He was a hyper-conqueror. God brought him victory in the midst of seeming defeat. Nobody does things like this without the supernatural power of God on their side helping them. Nobody. The enemy has no warriors like this. Our warriors carried the anointing of God to do special things as warriors for God. So where did these mighty men get their power? Clearly, we're talking about supernatural ability that made them into superhuman warriors capable of doing things almost beyond belief. You know, you read through the mighty men of valor and you struggle with unbelief. This really happened? Oh, my Lord. So I want to share some scriptures that will shed some light in, into the power that these men tapped into. Now, this is from King David's writings, Psalm 144, verse 1 through 2. In the English Standard Version, that is Psalm 144, verse 1 through 2. Listen to this. David tells us unequivocally where his power and strength came from. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. If you hold a sword, if you draw a bow, if you handle a spear, you're going to do it with your fingers and you're going to do it with your hands. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, and he in whom I take refuge. Listen to this. Who subdues peoples under me. Here, King David tells us about the power that he and his mighty men tapped into when they did the things that they did. He says it was the Lord, his rock, who trained his hands for war and his fingers to fight. That's my baby girl, Luna. My grandbaby girl. Cooing back there. I think she likes the preaching. He goes on to say that it was God's love that was his fortress, his stronghold, his deliverer, his shield. How can you go wrong or be defeated when God's love is your shield? And it was God's supernatural power working through him that subdued all enemies beneath him. Again, David writes in 2 Samuel 22. Turn to 2 Samuel 22. We're going to read verse 33 and 35. You can also find this in the Psalms, but I like the way it reads in 2 Samuel better. This is King David telling us again where his strength and where his power came from. Verse 33. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war 
so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You know, I looked up the definition. It also means steel. And in fact, the King James says, so that my arms can bend a bow of steel. You can't do that without some help from the Lord. Again, King David tells us that the source of his strength and power is the Lord. He can run like a deer and he's strong enough to bend a bow of steel. Again, this is talking about supernatural anointing that comes on godly warriors. Godly warriors of old to fight and win physical, natural battles. And it was such a powerful anointing that these mighty men of valor achieved stunning, almost unbelievable victories in the midst of seeming defeat and against overwhelming odds. I believe they were the world's first hyper-conquerors, the world's first superheroes. I believe with all my heart that modern-day godly warriors can still tap into that supernatural warrior anointing. I know I did it from time to time when I flew combat missions. I know I tapped into something that took me over and beyond, that kept me safe when others were shot down. And that's kind of a good segue into wrapping things up for today. You may not be called to the military to fight and win natural, physical battles, but we're all called to be mighty warriors for the Lord in the Spirit. Amen. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4.6. Amen. Most of the battles we face today are spiritual in nature. But whether it's a natural battle or a spiritual battle, it is victory in the spirit that determines victory in the natural. Victory in every realm. So let me leave you with Romans 8.37. You could be turning there. Romans 8, 37. Again, I'll be reading eventually here from the Passion Translation. Let's read it one more time. And listen, let's determine as a people that we're going to walk in the victory that God intended for us to walk in. Not just some of the time, but all of the time. If you're a hyper conqueror, you're living victory all the time. It is God's plan. It is God's will. It is God's way. Romans 8.37 Yet even in the midst of all these things, troubles, trials, tribulation, physical battles, or spiritual battles, yet even in the midst of all these things, we triumph over them all. For God has made us to be more than conquerors, hyper-conquerors, and His demonstrated love is our glorious victory over everything. What a great word. Amen? Amen. We hope you enjoyed part two of Dr. Forrest's message, Victory in the Midst of Seeming Defeat. If you are in the Wilmington area and are looking for a place to worship, come join us on Sunday at 9.45 a.m. for coffee and fellowship and 10.30 for worship and service. If you would like to learn more about us and hear more of Dr. Forrest's teachings, visit our website 
at GoFaithLife.com. Also, visit and like our Facebook page at Faith Life Wilmington. <music>